Thank you, Rob. Well, it's an exciting day today. It's a new term. Uh, schools are starting back, and, uh, but it's a new term for us as church as well, which is great. We've actually got a new series that we're starting. Alan, if you could pop the first slide up on the screen, that'd be wonderful. Uh, just for this month, and uh, several different topics coming under this, this theme of when God made you. And I think this is a really exciting topic, an interesting one, hopefully, uh, but one that challenges and builds on some assumptions that we make, challenges them first, and then puts some good theory in and some good uh, teaching in to hopefully provide a great foundation in our lives uh, to understand what God was doing when he made us. What on earth was he thinking when he made you and when he made me? What was going through his mind? Why was he doing it? And uh, we're going to touch a tiny bit on science, a little bit on philosophy, but mainly on the word of God because that's what we're here to do is to open up God's word and to look at what God is saying to us uh, today. I think the Bible makes a unique contribution into this topic of why we're here, what we're here to do on this planet. And uh, so that's what we're going to be looking at this month. Now today, very simply, uh, the topic is this, that God made you. And it's very simple. Um, Hopefully many of you have grasped this already, this thought that God made you, that you're made by God. But I want to unpack this a little bit this morning um, for a few minutes, about 25 minutes probably, and just look at a few principles around this that I think might be helpful for us uh, today. Now, some of us have been on summer holidays. Some of you, uh, there's still some photos going up on Facebook. Those of you that are friends on Facebook, you can see different places people are going, and some look stunning. If you don't, if you've been uh, stalking other people's holidays via Facebook over the summer, it's a great hobby to do. And uh, particularly if you're sat indoors or in the office, you know, and you're on your lunch break, you can just have a look and think, oh, they're they're in another infinity pool again. Um, oh, what a hardship. I wouldn't want to be there. You know, you can, you can just compare and you know, contrast. And, uh, but it's, it's interesting to see these different pictures of people going around the world. And when you get back, you, you can share stories together a little bit. Um, but what it does is it gets a glimpse of other nations and other parts of the world, other bits of the countryside. If you're in this country and you're traveling to a part you're not so familiar with, you get a different sense of the scenery, of what, how things are laid out. You maybe see some different animals that you're not used to seeing. And there's this, this sense that we appreciate the beauty of creation more if we're out in it. Uh, and we go and see what's around. And we can really get to grips with a little bit of God's majesty and creation. And I hope that when you're there and you're seeing these wonderful sights, that actually what you do is you, you give thanks to, for, to God for, for the wonderful creation that's all around. That we're not just looking and, and kind of busy with the next task, but we're pausing and stopping and, and, and giving thanks to God. Just a few weeks ago, there was a solar eclipse, and I know Ross is over in, has been over in America, and I think Nathan, who was in the church up until fairly recently, has been as well. Uh, and these guys went to see the solar e- Well, can you, you uh, be there when the solar eclipse is happening? It's not really the thing you can see, is it? You can't really see the everything going black. Um, but they were there to experience it and to, to be there and to, to, to get this sense of what was going on at that point. They'll come back and share the stories, no doubt, about that. Uh, the Bible opens with a verse that says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's a beautiful and brilliant starting point. It's simple and clear. God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing before him. All flows from him and his word. Nothing would exist without him. He's the origin of all that is. He's the source of everything. In the beginning, God 
created. All Christians believe that God exists and that God is the creator. All Christians believe that. There are a variety of opinions as to how God did it, the mechanisms God used for creation, but all Christians believe that God exists and God is the creator. And the teaching through the Bible from the beginning of Genesis, which we've got the very first verse in the Bible, right to the very end when God is still creating, he's making a new heaven and a new earth, we see this theme unraveling through, through the law, through the, the wisdom writings, through the prophets in the Old Testament, through to the New Testament, that God is creator, that he's creating, and it's the teaching of the whole book. Now, that creation, the wonder of the beauty of that creation has been brought closer to us than ever these days. You can go on the internet and you can watch programs that bring the wonders of creation close to home, don't they? As scientists or astronomers are still looking up to the skies and discovering uh, further and further more distant events that, that they're still unraveling the, the meaning and mystery of. And as, as other people are descending to the bottom of the oceans to, to search out some of those really weird things that are down there, looking up and looking down to see the wonders of creation all around us. And those things come close and come home to us today. And it's not until the end of the creative process in Genesis 1 that God makes people. He makes us. And this, this is the verse that I want to particularly hone in on this morning. It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. People are amazing. Creation is amazing, wonderful, but, but God is better. God started it all. God initiated the whole process. And, uh, and in fact, there's a bit of a gap between us and God. We're, we're made and God isn't. He's, he's the high point of all of creation. We're clever. We're brilliant at making, do, making inventions and doing things. But God is better because he created the whole Universe. This could be a recurring theme this morning. Welcome back. Are you? Okay, all right. Oh. This is, you're right. You'll be back. All right, no problem, man. So I want to look at some so what's from this. Because you were created, you're not God. Now, that might be a great relief. It might be a great relief that you don't have the problems of the world on your shoulders to look after them. But actually, it's, it's, it's important that we grasp this, this simple thing that because we're created, we're not God. We're amazing and wonderful, but God is better, bigger, all-powerful, and we're not. And our lives are fleeting and fragile, but God endures. And those differences are marked between us and God, and it's important that we realize that actually he is Lord and King, and that means I'm not. And secondly, because I'm created, it means I'm dependent on God. I'm dependent on the King of Kings. And as we grow, uh, we desire increasing independence. One of the, we, we love having the kids around. It's great to have Anne and Claire back. They've gone. They'll be back in a minute um, from Singapore. They've been away for a few years. And it's great to have them back. And as, we, as kids grow, we watch them as church family growing from tiny dots into increasingly 
bigger beings. And we observe the kids being carried out to crash and running up to sparklers and going off to uh, radiant kids and then going into youth and these different phases as we're growing. And part of that is that we develop increasing independence. It's not good for a child to still be being spoon-fed necessarily when they're an adult. We should have sorted ourselves out for feeding by then. It's not good to be carried around necessarily if you're able to walk as an adult because you should have sorted that out by then. There's an increasing independence that comes that's important to growing up. But yet there is a tendency for us to take that too far. There's a tendency for us to embrace our independence to such a stage that we cease to be dependent on God. And we try and live as if we are independent beings. I said just a minute ago that, that Christians believe that God exists and that he creates, that he's a creator. That makes us theists. We believe in God. There's a whole lot of other people called naturalists. They look around, not naturists, that's something completely different, but naturalists. Uh, and they look at the world and they say, there's, there's nothing else other than this. This is all that there is. There is nothing else beyond. This is it. This is the sum total of life and existence. This is all we have. Part of the va- that worldview is to, to elevate independence. To say that the most mature, most responsible, most intelligent response to the universe is to be completely independent and on your own. We no longer need God. I am who I am. I exist. And it's about my journey of self-discovery. That's what the, the total sum of my existence is all about. To live as if life, to live as if God doesn't exist or to at least pretend that he doesn't. Uh, uh, to my mind, that's not a lot different from a child playing hide-and-seek, a young child, where they stand in the middle of the room and they shut their eyes and they pretend they're hiding. And, and actually, everybody else can see them, but they just can't see everybody else, so it's as if they've hidden. And, uh, and not, there's, there's a lot more philosophical arguments we could have, but simply put, to pretend that God doesn't exist or to convince yourself that God doesn't exist and say, there is nothing else, I'm it, seems to me... In my perspective, to be really short-sighted. To say, I'm going to shut down all of that that's, and just look at what's around me and go, well, this might exist, therefore I'll, I'll, I'll bring my, my view of the world down to this. And that's an important fundamental difference. Either we're created by God or we're independent and we do what we like. And I suppose my question really simply is, that, well, how are we living? Are we living as people who are independent and do what we like, or is we living as dependent people created by God? Because it's not just about what you think, but it's about how we live. So are we living as creatures of God, created by him, dependent on him, trusting him, relying on him? Secondly, we see that we're designed. Uh, this, this wonderful passage, Genesis 1.26, says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Creation isn't an accident. It's not accidental. God wasn't just busy doing something else one day and went, oh no, look what I've done. I've created and I, I, said, some, I said let there be and I didn't mean to and I can't put it back. Creation wasn't an accident. It was intentional and designed. Not by chance. It wasn't random. Humanity's existence wasn't a fluke. But we exist because of God's choice. Because of God's design. Because of God's desire. Because we were wanted and chosen and part of his plan. That's why we exist. 
in Genesis 1, we read account of the different days, the sections of creation, and each part continues until we get to this verse 26. Each part designed and in its place and ordered by God who creates on purpose. I don't know if you've ever asked the question, why did God make us? Why? Why then did God make us? If he, what was it? And I've, I've heard someone say, or people say, well, God was almost to imply that God was lonely and that he needed us. He needed some kind of companionship and nothing could be further from the truth. God was complete in himself. He didn't need us, didn't need our worship or our, didn't need to be glorified by us. He wasn't kind of somehow diminished by himself. There's a verse which I find really helpful. It's in Acts 17. And this is talking about creation and God setting up the nations and the people in nations. And, and then it says this, God this did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Why did God create us? Put us in different people groups. Why? God did this so that we would seek him and reach for him and find him. That's why God made us for us. So that we could know him, so that we could be in relationship with him, so that we could be found in him. And I just want to, to each point, I've got three points, we're on the second one. I want to bring out some so what's that I believe are important. So what if we're designed? Your life is not an accident. Your life, my life, is not an accident. What's true globally is true personally. Your life is intended and purposed and planned doesn't matter what anybody else says. doesn't even matter what your parents told you or the people who brought you up told you. doesn't matter if they were surprised by you being here. God made us and our lives are not accidental. The second so what on this is that we're known by God. We're known by him. He created us. He designed us. He knows us. When you make something, if ever you have in, in, maybe in school, it might be in a design technology class or something like that, and you've, you've fashioned something, you've made it, you know every bit of that thing you've created. You know how it works or is meant to work. You know the bit where you were working on it and you, you made a mistake and you tried to cover it up. You, you, can, you can go to that bit of the item every time. And God knows us intimately. He designed us. He fashioned us. He made us. He knows all our needs. He knows our uniquenesses, our challenges, our boundaries, our backgrounds, and everything about us. Thirdly, I want to just look at this a little bit here about being made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. People are made differently to the rest of creation. In Genesis 1, we read through the account, God said, let there be, God said, let there be, God said, let there be. Uh, and, and different aspects of creation are made. And we get to this verse in Genesis 1.26, and there's a pause. Something different happens. I think it's the verse, it is this verse. Then God said, so just before this, let us make mankind in our image. Let us. There's a conversation that takes place in God. There's a conversation as God pauses, and he hasn't done this before, and he then says, let us make man in our image or mankind in our image in our likeness 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Human beings are not like other animals, not just because there might be differences in size or intelligence or sense of humor or our ability to wonder or worship or laugh or cry or be aware of our own mortality, though some of those things do make differences between us and animals. But it's this thing here where God makes us in his image that is distinct from the rest of creation and gives us a particular task to perform that we do well in parts and have do well, done well in parts. And at times we do it really badly, but God gives us a role. And he makes us in his image, not to say that we look like him, but we're made to resemble him, to be a likeness of him, a, a representation of him. And just note here that he makes us male and female in his image as well. Mankind is made in his image, and male and female he's created them. Two sexes, two genders, both made as image bearers of the king. Both important, equal in value before God, and both separately and together needed for the task of filling the earth and subduing it. Up until now, gender hasn't been mentioned. Or sex hasn't been mentioned in the animals or anything else that went before. But now humanity's here. We need male and female to fulfill the purpose that God has for creation. So what? Your life's valuable to God. Have we got any football fans here today? A few. A few. Okay, a handful. So some of you will have seen, and if you don't like football, you may have noticed these stories anyway. Uh, some of you will have seen the football transfer window closed this last week. Now, what that means is clubs are able to buy and sell players uh, up until roughly the end of August, unless the fax machine wasn't working or something like that, and then they can extend it a little bit longer. Um, but that's roughly the deal. They get a month or so to, to trade players. And you may have noticed, some of you who aren't football fans, the figures being paid for some football players recently. £100 million pounds. 150 million pounds, 200 million. There's huge figures being played, paid. One of, the, one of the guys who's been transferred this year on loan with a, with a club being given an option to buy him next year is 18 years old, and the figure, I think, is 160 million pounds. Is that right? Is, is that the right amount? 160 million pounds. Um, he's 18, he's played for one season, and uh, this is the figure that might be paid for him next year. That's a huge amount, isn't it, at 18? What a responsibility. Now, now, to the club, he's evidently worth £160 million, this kid. What, that's amazing. What a sense of value and purpose and worth that would give you at 18. It might blow your mind a little bit, but, but that's incredible. Now, just a decade later, kind of 30s, Players are being released as free agents. They're scrabbling around trying to find a club to play for. So, so what's happened in that intervening time? At 18, you've got very little experience. You're not proven by the time you're 30. 35, you're proven you've got experience, but you're worth more at 18 than you're... How does that work? Now, we understand from a business point of view in the football world how that works, but, but I just want to say that your life is valuable to God, even if no team's bidding 160 million for you. Even if... Your football prowess didn't amount to much. And actually, if, there was, if it came to sports teams being picked, you weren't the first one chosen. 
Even if that were you, your life is valuable to God and mine too. Those football players have an eternal value that isn't determined by their ability to kick a ball. If they break both their legs and never play again, they still have the same value in God. They're useless to their football team, but they have value in God. I'm not a f- I don't know much about antiques or art. I enjoy looking at art, but I don't particularly understand it. But when, I've seen when people are valuing items of, of antiques, they, they would turn over perhaps a pot and look for the maker's mark on the bottom. Uh, and if you, can, if you can see the right mark, the, the item that you're valuing has, has quite a high value. Can be can be very expensive indeed, because the maker has put his mark on that pot. And really, all I want to say is God has put His image in us, and so our value is determined by God's image in us, not by anything else. He delights over you and over me. Now, there's a that's a kind of for some of us that might be a a truth that you need to build on more. You need to go home and go. I'm going to write this down. My life is valuable to God because I'm made in His image. And for those who struggle with a sense of value, you might need to write that down. For many of us, we might, need to struggle, we might need to work through this other aspect, which is the second one, that everybody's life is valuable to God. Even those really annoying people that get on your nerves. Even the people that you just disagree with constantly and you've had a disagreement and you want to separate yourselves from them because it's too annoying. And, and ugh, Even they're valuable to God at just the same level you are. They're of infinite worth, of incredible value, because they're also made in God's image. We know that John 3.16 says that God so loved the world, the helpless baby, the severely disabled. All ages all have intrinsic worth. Now, humanity has an appalling record of getting this right. We tend to section certain groups out and say, this group has more value than this group. And this group has more value than that group. And if we don't do it sociologically, if we don't do it philosophically, we do it just to how we live our lives. We treat people as if they have differing values. And that's a real shame. Because even people in the most desperate of situations, people whose everything they do feels obnoxious to us, it seems as if they've set out on a course of life that is not only destructive to themselves, but it's destructive to everybody else. And everything they stand for and promote and, and proclaim is, is hostile to what we believe or how we live. Still, every single person who may do that has the same value before God. The sense that everybody is valuable is why Christians have been at the forefront of the hospice movement in setting up hospitals, in in helping the poor or the marginalized. It's why Christians have stood against issues like abortion or stood on issues like abortion or euthanasia or assisted suicide or or, um, those sort of things. And why we see every suicide as a tragedy because every life is valuable to God. Uh, this, This sense that everyone's life is valuable to God should spur us on in three ways. It should spur us on in love into grace, into community of loving people and caring for people compassionately. Secondly, into generosity and justice. When we read the Bible, there's a bias to the poor. I don't know if you've noticed that. There's, there's a bias to the poor and the people on, margin, on the margins, to those who seem to have the least value. 
And I don't think the Bible's saying that the rich have no value, but I think God's just rebalancing the scales a little bit. Because we're quite good at giving rich people value. The world is quite good at affirming people who have wealth or fame or status or position and saying, you have value. And so I think what the Bible does consistently is it just levels the scales and it lifts up the poor and the needy and says, no, each person has shared value. So we should be spurred by this sense that everyone's life is valuable into generosity. We should also be spurred into mission. If every life is valuable, then every person who's lost without Jesus is worth rescuing. Third thing just on here is your value is not based on your performance. I said I wasn't an expert on antiques, and I'm certainly not. But I know that there's very few pots that appear on Antiques Roadshow or programs similar or go up for auction whose value is intrinsically linked to what that pot has achieved in its lifetime. Very few. Occasionally, there are famous items. Famous people have a clear out and somebody's died and there's so-and-so's dress you can buy or uh, something from their home. And it has value because it's connected to the person. But most items that come up and are of extraordinary value are maybe exquisitely designed, of great ancient age. They're, they're a one-off or they're a, they're a masterpiece, but it doesn't matter that, that that pot's had umbrellas in it for the whole of its life or flowers in it, or it was used to carry diamonds or platinum. It doesn't matter what's been in it. It's the fact that the pot itself has value. If the pot's just been sat in a cupboard all its life, it still has value and, in fact, may have more value because it's less hammered and broken and battered and... Your value is not based on your performance. And this is a really hard one for us to grasp because we constantly measure ourselves on our output, on our performance, on how we compare with other people. I don't want to traumatize you by taking you back to primary school or to school. Some Some of you are there and can help us with this, but the conversation that takes place when you've got test results and you know, there's a few conversations, and I've, some of you are looking traumatized already. Um, there's, there's a few conversations that can happen around getting test results and taking them home to show mum and dad. Uh, the conversations can be varied, but there's, there's one which I particularly like, which is where you measure yourself against the rest of the class. And this is great because it's quite fluid, and you can, you can pick out certain people to compare with who did a lot worse than you. And you can discount the people who did a lot better than you, and you kind of do your own bit of... Uh, statistics, where you're, where you're taking off the top of the curve and you're taking off the bottom. No, you keep the bottom in, don't you, because it makes you look better. But you compare with certain groups of people when you go home and you say, well, I did better than so-and-so and better, and so-and-so didn't do very well at all. And we're trying to justify how we've done based on other people. Now, we may not still need to do that in exams, but we do it a lot in life, don't we? I haven't got 50 pounds in 10-pound notes. I had it on my notes to bring them, but I haven't got it, so I'm not going to ask for it either. But if I had 50 pounds in 10-pound notes, screwed one up, stamped on another, they would all still have the same intrinsic value. Not because one has been beaten and battered, not because one's older or younger, but just because they bear the print that tells me that they're worth 10 pounds. And our value is not based on our performance in this life or our output. Otherwise, just imagine what happens to a high-earning person who loses their job and becomes unemployed. In God, their value and worth as a person is not diminished. But in society, it's tempting to think, I have no place or role. 
And it's not true. As a, I'm just going to finish with this thought. There's a guy called Henri Nouon, who I think Gareth may have introduced me to, um, who was a Dutch Catholic, not literally, just his writings, Dutch Catholic priest, professor, writer, and theologian. This guy is brain on legs. He did all of that. Priest, professor, writer, theologian. And he resigned as a professor and began, after a period of time, working in a community of people with particular difficulties and profound disabilities. And he was paired with a guy called Adam, Adam Arnett, who was a member of this community. And instead of lecturing and instead of writing and instead of dealing with students and instead of having professorial colleagues around him all day, Omri Nuon spent day after day after day nursing Adam and caring for Adam. And he wrote about this in a book called Adam, God's Beloved. And wrote about all that he'd learned through being with Adam and the, the change it had made in his life and the transformation it made in his life. Now, now, to most of us, that doesn't make much sense. Why, when you can influence so many, when you can write a book and transform people's lives, when you, why, when you can shape young people's lives in university, would you go and leave all that and go and work with one person? who maybe can't communicate very well, who maybe isn't as high up the, the social order. Why, why would you do that? Why would you go to obscurity when you have so much productive time left? Because God told him to. Because in God's eyes, caring for Adam is just as important as doing all those other things. Because there's no difference. There's no difference in significance or importance or value because Adam matters just the same as all of those other students and everybody else who's going to read a book. So how then should we live? Oh, sorry, last one. You've got a purpose as an image bearer. We've got a role to play as image bearers of God in the world. How then do we live? Well, my encouragement in these few minutes is to see that God made us. To really take that to heart. To value our physical frame. To value our spirit to value ourselves as those made by God, but to give the same value to other people too. To treat everybody else as created by God, designed by him, made in his image, even if to you that image seems tarnished. Even if it seems as like there's a load of crud that's covering the image and, and you don't even want to begin peeling it back. That person's still made in the image of God. Try to start Treating ourselves and others as those who are designed for relationship with God and living as those who are valuable to him, living as those who bring compassion and kindness to the world, living as those who bring justice where it's needed, who bring mission and who love. I wonder if we can actually begin to do what, Jesus, uh, what God told us to do in the beginning. Fill the earth, subdue it, and to live as his in image bearers in the world. I think there's a lot we can be getting on with with that. And my prayer is that we would grasp this sense of being made by God. That if you've battled, if you've battled to have a sense of value yourself, that, would be, that struggle would be torn down. And you would receive revelation today that you are his and made in his image. If you've been struggling with thoughts about other people, that those would be torn down. And we'd see people as God sees them. Let's pray, shall we?
Lord, we thank you that throughout your word is this theme that you created and we pray that that would remain with us. That we're aware that some would argue that you don't exist. That we are the just a, a random happening perhaps and there's nothing more to discover. But we reject that notion. But not only do we reject it, we choose to embrace today the notion that you created us. We embrace the truth that you've made us and you've made us on purpose. We embrace the truth that we are yours, that we and others have value. And I pray that you would make us more compassionate because of that. I pray you'd make us more prayerful because of that. I pray you'd help us stop living lives which are small in scale in our thinking and where we just think we're doing something tiny and insignificant and instead we begin to grasp hold of this wonderful truth that we're created by you, that we're made in your image, that we're image bearers to the world. And whatever that means, whether it's caring for an Adam or speaking to thousands or working in an office or whatever it may be, Lord, I pray that you'd help us grasp that concept today, that we would be transformed and made new. In Jesus' name, amen.